0: bookish at Bethel. I'm Carrie Peffley, and I'm in the philosophy department, and I'm joined by
1: Anne-Marie Koistra, and I'm in the history department.
0: And today our guest is Eric Leifblad from the biblical and theological studies department, and we're going to be talking about Jürgen Moltmann's theology um, and his book, Jesus Christ for Today's World. So Eric, could you begin by describing for our listeners and what the students are going to be reading.
2: Yeah, so the text that they're going to dig into is called uh, Jesus Christ for Today's World. And in some sense, that title is really an an apt title for kind of what Moltmann does as a theologian. One of his significant impacts, so he's a pretty big name German theologian in the 20th century, but really he extends um, beyond Germany. In fact, he's not super well received in Germany because of um, I mean, he he teaches at Tübingen. So like in a certain sense, like he has his people, but there's a lot of criticism um, among sort of the, maybe what you might call like the ivory tower sorts in Germany, because he's so eclectic because um, he doesn't um, he's a reformed theologian, but he's not like, he's not cutting the mold of a Calvin certainly. And he um he would argue that he's sort of continuing the trajectory of Karl Barth, who is one of his uh, kind of one of his late teachers. Though um, Barth <laughs> doesn't think he is, uh, which is an interesting sort of thing. Um, he doesn't think he isn't. He just thinks this guy named Eberhard Jungel is more like his protege than than Moltmann. Anyway, that's just a little nerdy aside. Um, but part of what makes Moltmann, um so interesting and maybe able to break out of kind of the European mold of systematic theology in the 20th century is that he 's a very eclectic theologian, so he will work with um, he like in other words like i would I would call him kind of a dialogical theologian he wants to be in dialogue with people who aren 't like him and so he starts to listen to feminist theology he starts to listen to voices from latin america he starts to listen to um voices of oppressed peoples and um folks who are doing theology from the from the lived situation of oppression and that really has a significant impact on him and kind of his biography and i said this a little bit in my lecture too but part of his biography is probably indicative of that he he sort of has a like come to jesus moment maybe not in like the typical like you know american evangelical sense but he's a he's a prisoner of war in world war ii and sort of learns uh of everything that the the german people were um had committed and like i think that like you probably had to have a little bit of a sense of it as a german but i think in the same way that like we might hear about stuff that's happening on the border as americans go i can't really be that bad can it um I think you probably did that as a German, but then he ends up in this prisoner of war camp and and hears of what's happening in like poland and and russia and uh in with concentration camps and he sort of has this existential crisis of like uh, basically he's led to repentance um and so he thinks through in a in a weird sort of way he starts to think through theology from the perspective of the victims of history even though he himself was maybe you might say on the side of uh the victimizer um and so i think that sort of repentant kind of posture is really i think it's really evident in his theology it's one of the reasons i like him he really um he really tries to think through theology from the perspective of somebody besides himself um Without, you know, like that's not a like it's not like he doesn't have his own theological convictions, but he's he's maybe trying to inhabit his convictions um, in a spirit of dialogue. And what I would argue, I use him in my own work um, uh, as a practical theologian or what I call a ministerial theologian. I think he actually sees theology as ministry or um, kind of tending to the personhood of the other. And so he really views maybe the theological space as a relational Um, a relational boundary uh, that needs to be crossed um, from the perspective of the theologian to the other to really do good theology. I think that's where he, so if Bonhoeffer's question is where's Jesus Christ to be found, Moltmann would say only in crossing that boundary to the other and really hearing them. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, Eric, he's also somebody who we have seen, I think in a chapter of Roger Olson being equated with a theology of hope. Mm Mm-hmm. Could you say why he is called or he's equated with a the theology of hope? Like, what is yeah. that?
2: Mean? Yeah. So in some ways, um, I, he, he gets kind of characterized as the um, main sort of voice of a theology of hope, because that was the title of his first book. Um, his first major treatise was on hope, because that's kind of what he discovered in this prisoner of war camp is that only through sort of. A, a robust encounter with suffering can one come to hope, and so he starts to think out of what's called kind of an eschatological horizon. So it's it's kind of it's a little. I oh, have to put
1: that into layman's
2: yeah. terms. There, I, I'm I'm about to. Okay, thank <laughs> I you. Think. Anyway, I'll try. Um, so basically, like Moltmann believes that that, and he he tries to kind of he tries to never let go of what he calls the messianic um, outlook of the Jewish people. So he does not want to replace like, and this makes sense of the biography I just went through. He fights like crazy to not ever do like a a supersessionist or a replacement theology for the church. So he wants to carve out a robust space for the Jewishness of the biblical story to remain vital to a Christian articulation the way that he does that is that he he orients um he he in dialogue with Jewish theologians who remain um in a certain sense like God's future is still out in front of the Jewish people they still have this messianic expectation and Moltmann agrees with that and he actually think that thinks that's a Christian position that what the resurrection of Jesus is about is not um, like everything's better, but um, it, it's it's about th- the Christian must be oriented towards God's future, which is life breaking into death, and mm-hmm. so he that that sort of messianic expectation gets translated into Christian language of for for Moltmann as um, sort of the coming of God's future, um, and so the, the an eschatological horizon is the idea that like we're looking towards the future but we're looking at it as that which has come in Christ through in and through the resurrection. So, um, Did that help flesh it out a little bit? That's what constitutes him as a theologian of hope. But what's interesting, and this is the part that bugs me somewhat about Roger's book um, is like his, his, the very next book he writes is the one that's actually, I think his best work, which is called the crucified God. So he writes this book, theology of hope, which is all about sort of, the eschatological horizon, the future of God coming to us. But then he moves from that into a, a deep articulation of the suffering of God. And, and, and that the only ground for the hope of an eschatological horizon is to enter into the suffering of the world. Um, so hope is not this like Christian optimism. And that's often what I think many of our Bethel students kind of mm-hmm. think of is like if they're in the middle of like, a mental health crisis or something they feel like they've sinned or done something wrong and Moltmann would suggest like no way like the only way for you to actually experience or encounter the hope of god's future is to recognize that suffering is actually ingredient to your discipleship um, mm-hmm. and so i think it's actually more important that after theology of hope which really made some significant ripples in theology within a year or two he wrote the crucified God. Cause I think he never wanted people to forget that the hope of God is always tethered to the real lived reality of suffering, which is not just humans experience, but also the very experience of God in Christ.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you bring up suffering, which I think makes sense, especially in the context of post-World War II. And, um, Obviously, the problem of evil has always been a problem that people have wondered about, but especially after World War II, it becomes really, really acute. Um, and this question of why God would allow such atrocious things to happen. Um, and I think Moltmann's response to that is is quite interesting. So can you describe a little bit more how he talks about that problem of evil?
2: Yeah. Um, well... So on the one hand, like he kind of doesn't address the problem of evil, right? Mm-hmm. Like he essentially says, like, if you want to answer the question of why you won't actually encounter the God of the Bible, you won't encounter the God of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You'll encounter a God of metaphysics. You'll encounter perhaps an impassable God or a God who can't suffer. And so he, re- he actually thinks it's our God concepts that need to be corrected first. Mm-hmm. And once we correct the way that we think about God by looking instead to where God gives God's self to be found in the person of Jesus, the God who suffers with us, then the problem of evil becomes not so much a metaphysical problem or even a a theological problem. It becomes an existential or what I, this is where I employ Maltmont to, I think, somewhat constructive effect, that it becomes a ministerial problem. Now the problem of evil is not so much about how do you get God off the hook for suffering or, or how do you explain suffering in light of an all good God? Instead it becomes what, how can this, how can the problem itself become the the very conditions in which the God who brings life out of death might meet us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it becomes a space for waiting. It becomes a space for patience. It becomes a space of silence in some ways Um, because the only like this would be my sort of like confessional theology. The only, the only way I think to answer that question is for God to speak. I don't know how to speak to that as a human. And I think, I think that's essentially what, what Moltmann would say is that God suffers with us. And sometimes that means silence. And so I think actually the posture for the church in response to the problem of evil is a lot more about waiting and sitting and dwelling in the midst of suffering, um, as a kind of placeholder, you might say, um, not to take God's place, but to hold that space. So that when God speaks, when something fills the void of suffering, uh, there's a person there that can go there. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the response. That's the answer. And it doesn't solve our metaphysical problems, but it does solve our existential, it does solve our human problems, which is really at root. What I think the problem of evil is about. It's about our humanity. It's about how do we remain human in a world that utterly wants to be human us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think some of what you're saying, is making me think of our conversation with Amanda Hamilton and her work in which she explores darkness. Yeah, Because one of the things that I think about with what she's doing in her art and what Moltmann says about suffering, unlike Bonhoeffer, who seems to say, when we suffer with Christ, it's a way that Christ lifts us to God. I think the action in Moltmann is a little different in that in Christ suffering with us and being in the darkness with us, he is bringing God to us, and that's a very interesting and rather profound perspective. I think from um, Jürgen, <laughs> yeah. By the way,
2: well, and this would be this would be where he thinks he's actually picking up that trajectory of Bart because one of the things that Bart talks about in his massive, huge church dogmatics is that we have to always think in terms of dialectics. So where Bonhoeffer talks about Jesus sort of lifting us up, Bonhoeffer or Bart would remind Bonhoeffer, but that also means that God has to condescend to us. God, ha- not, not in the pejorative sense, but God has to come down to us. And I think I think Moltmann's trying to think that dialectic through uh, from that perspective, like, what does God's condesc—what would our doctrine of God be if we took seriously the fact that God is a God who condescends, which is a very biblical way of thinking? I mean, this is Paul's confession in Philippians 2 when he says that he that you know uh, was in the form of God did not consider uh, equality or 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 sort of that unity with God something to be held onto, but instead emptied himself, mm-hmm. condescended, gave himself away, that for the sake of Humans to, to lift. So the, the uplift of God in in Moltmann just is God's condescension to us. And I think he's indebted to Bonhoeffer for that in some ways, but I also think he fleshes it out in a way that's much more uh, fleshy. I get fleshes yeah. it out. More, fleshes like, it out
0: fleshly.
1: More
2: fleshly. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's, that's some good talking there, Eric. Appreciate mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, the other thing though, I always like to mention with Moltmann is that as much as the suffering is powerful, a lot of his emphasis is on remembering that Christ was also resurrected. Yeah. Right. So it's not that he just is going to leave us in the suffering, but that there is power in the resurrection and that we're part of the resurrection too. And I think tying into this observation that you made about, um, you know, how God is coming to us and all that good stuff. He's got this really powerful sense of who God is and what God accomplishes, what Christ accomplishes to the point that, um, and I feel like this is something that stands out to students a lot. He almost dabbles with this whole idea of universal salvation and that Christ, when he descends into hell, that's also maybe part of the redemptive process. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I I would go so far as to say, like if you read, um, if you read his whole corpus, he doesn't so much dabble uh, as he drinks of universal salvation. Um, he's a good German theologian post Bart, so he's never going to give himself to like an ism. Right. Like that's one of the the big things after Bart's big revolution and particularly after the world after World War II. Isms represent ideology. So those are bad. Let's get rid of those. Um sometimes though, that I think stops some of these guys from following their logic through and stating things um in a in a in a sort of like they're not afraid to say what they mean, but sometimes they're afraid to drive their stake in the ground. I mean, I think, I think that's the case with Moltmann. I, think, I don't think he ever comes out and says, like, yeah, God saves everybody. He sort of says. Uh,
1: I think he's hopeful that God will. Yeah,
2: yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, he would, he would echo what Bart said when he was asked a similar question. And it's like, well, uh, I'm not a universalist, but God might be. <laughs> I I think (laughs) that's a a a cheeky way of, of Mm -hmm. replying. But but I think that, I think that represents Moltmann too. It's kind of the idea, like I have to hold the category open because God is the one who saves. And yet the God that I seem to be articulating here is a a God who saves. So, Mm -hmm.
0: yeah. And that certainly becomes, I mean, since our students have been reading Nietzsche and his criticisms of the way Christians talk about the afterlife, this hell as an eternal torture chamber where Christians are like, yay, the people mm-hmm. I hate are gonna suffer forever, woo-hoo. In in many ways, Moltmann is responding to the very practical problems with Christians who who believe that.
2: Yeah, and he's he's like Nietzsche, and there's some of this in Bonhoeffer too. They're pushing beyond, you know, Nietzsche's whole essay is beyond good and evil, and Nietzsche's looking for a foundation for ethics that is beyond dividing the world up. Now, I don't like how he does it. Like, the will to power leaves a little bit to be desired from my perspective. But but I do think that's what both Bonhoeffer and, and Moltmann are after, mm-hmm. um, is an ethical position that's beyond categories of right and wrong that we can divide the world up in, and more just contextually who is this God who gives God's self to be known by us? Mm-hmm. Um, and that does kind of take you in some ways beyond the questions of good and evil. Um, it takes you into the very life of God. And that's a different foundation for ethics, um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: a very different foundation for ethics. Cause you can't, you can't work that out in the classroom. You have to work that out in the exigencies of life, <laughs> which is where ethics should be done, frankly. And I think that's what, I think that's what Nietzsche was trying to do. So for all the ways that Nietzsche might not really play well with a lot of things, a lot of Christian sorts of ideas. On the other hand, I think he understood a deeply sort of incarnational conviction that ethics is to be done in the world. Mm -hmm. That's where you really see where ethics matters.
1: Mm -hmm. So Carrie, you mentioned that um, Moltmann is one of your favorites. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering I'm curious why why are you so attracted to Mulman Carey yeah, me too, because he's not a good looking guy
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's a jolly looking guy though uh, um I think he's a jolly looking guy yeah that's so cool i I mean certainly because I am it, like I got into philosophy through metaphysics, the problem of evil is an interesting metaphysical problem to me, and I love the fact that he goes in a different direction to step around the question of why. Into the question of like, where is God in the midst of suffering? I think that's a brilliant way to get out of this intractable intractable problem that that philosophers of religion have created for themselves. Um, I also like I, I think his his model based on the resurrection and kind of this incarnational model of the world is one that, as a medievalist, I really resonate with that. In the incarnation and then especially in the resurrection, God has come to redeem the world, not to destroy it. And so his focus on creation care, um, Mm -hmm. I I think, is very, very moving. That part of eschatology is not like, and again, I think our our Bethel students are going to be more likely to say eschatology, it's the end times. We don't have to worry about the world. Right. For Moltmann, eschatology is about being involved um, in the world now and the kingdom of God Um, as we are participating in it, again, this sort of practical focus. Yeah, so I love Moltmann a lot.
1: (laughs) Well, and I think, too, he's so interesting in the context of the post-World War II world Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. so much has been lost, so many people have been killed. Yeah. And yet he finds the hope in that God is with us in our suffering, but that God has also been resurrected and so we can no longer be afraid to love because we're afraid to death. Instead, knowing that death is ultimately overcome should free us to love even more intensely. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. like that's something. I, I just think, gosh, that would take so much courage having witnessed all of the death of World War II. Mm-hmm. And
2: participated in it. Mm -hmm. right and i think that's the other piece uh, and again i don't think he knew all that was going on but he was out there in it you know he was a committed german person so Mm
0: -hmm. right Right. and realizing afterwards like oh this is what i was participating in
2: yeah yeah and and i i i think there's um maybe maybe one of the ways i i so i've had the privilege of of seeing him twice and and having a personal conversation with him once. And um, he really is what I'm about to say is a little bit contradictory, but I think it makes sense. Um, I think he's, he's very voluminous. He has written a lot. He continues to write a lot. And I kind of think he sees it as penance, Um, but he see, but, but only as like a Moltmann or a post-World War II German theologian could he he sees penance dialectically not as like paying the price for but like there's a joyful penance that the penance the 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 redemp- his redemption is actually his great joy which is to get to rethink everything he was given everything he thought to think it again for the first time um, and and in the, in the lecture i shared a couple pictures of him he's got that smile um, there is a kind of joy that comes out of him Uh, and and it comes in his reading too, unlike most German theologians, there's a kind of frivolousness to what he does. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean that as like, this is fun for him Mm -hmm. Um, because I think he's been given a task uh, in, in, in sort of waking up or being converted. I think he really feels like um, this was laid on me. I've been summoned to this work. And yet it's my great joy to be in it. So um, I think that, that connects with the idea of, of just like sort of freed to love, right? Like mm-hmm. he loves his work and he loves the world that he's been given again post-apocalypse, really. I mean, if you think mm-hmm. about World War II as kind of an apocalyptic moment, uh-huh. uh, the world's kind of been given back to him.
1: Well, that's a great thing to mention as students are registering for classes and are trying to think about what it is they're being called to do, that maybe joy is something that they should look for as um, they make those decisions. (laughs) So that's just an aside, but there it is. Um, I want to just read one of my favorite quotes from Moltmann, and um, this ties into some of the things you've just been saying or we've been just talking about. And he says... In this in this spirit of the resurrection, I can here and now wholly live, wholly love, and wholly die, for I know with certainty that I shall wholly rise again. In this hope, I can love all created things, for I know that none of them will be lost. Gosh, mm. that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
2: He's great. If he ever makes it back to the States and he's nearby, you should all go listen to him. He's as fun. I think he's as fun to read as he is, to, or he's as fun to listen to as he is to read.
0: Right. You know, and that brings up an interesting point that for the first time in the humanities program, we are now reading a person who is still alive. <laughs> <And> <laughs> he is. <laughs> yeah.
2: He's old, but he's still, he's still kicking.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think, is it the first and last time we will do such yeah. a, but yeah. Cause Camus died young ish yeah. and yeah. Thurman is also gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So see Moltmann if you can. There we go.
1: Yep.
2: <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, there's lots of people traveling right now and lots <laughs> of people <laughs> holding events.
0: <the> <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: Um, Eric, is there anything that we haven't talked about with regard to Moltmann that you think people ought to know? No, I don't think
2: so. I mean, there's, probably Moltmann folks out there that are yelling that, you know, cause they're all listening to bookish at Bethel. But um, <laughs> if they heard it, they're probably be like, you got to say this, you guys, I, but I can't, no, I don't think so. I, I, I guess I would just say to students that listen to this, like really enjoy it. Um, I, I think that's how Moltmann wants his theology to be read. I, you have to think he's not, you know, he's not this, like, he's not a Max Lucato. Thank God. Uh, but <laughs> but <laughs> but he wants you to enjoy it. Like in, in, in the truest sense, he wants you to feel the same joy, I think that he writes with. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I, have, go ahead. I was just going to say, if, if students really like what we do read, what would you recommend that they read next by him?
2: Yeah. Oh gosh. That's a As really we're thinking
0: about question. Christmas lists and such.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say the crucified God, I think it's his best work. Um, it's a, probably his hardest one to read, but it's good. If they really like this one, they'll really resonate with um, the way of Jesus Christ, because in some ways, this is a a kind of like essay form of a shorter essay form of that text itself. Um, Yeah, or or just search up some of his like he's got tons of essays in the Christian century and things like that. So you could just search up some of that stuff. So sometimes he just writes about like whatever he wants to write about. Um, in the world. And so he's got some stuff on like science and theology that's, I think, kind of, kind of nutty, but kind of fun to read. I don't think it makes a lot of sense, but (laughs) it's fine.
1: Well, I was just going to ask, and this isn't a fair question, Eric, so I I apologize in advance, but let's say you were a humanities student and you were writing a theology paper in which you had to connect Moltmann to another text in the humanities program. Yeah. What other text would you connect Moltmann to?
2: Um, depends what we mean by connect. I mean, I would connect it to Bonhoeffer. I already have a little bit, but that's too easy. Yeah. Um,
1: that's not very creative.
2: No, it isn't. I actually would connect him um, to uh, probably most closely to Julian.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, her sort of since you know like the famous like all will be well and all shall be well you know like mm-hmm. i think that's a very montmoniean way or probably a better way it says montmon's very julian in that sense
1: well i thought um, you were going to say in the sense that jesus christ is so present too yeah that i mean i think that too
2: but i think that i think that sort of summation of like mm-hmm. all is well because all will be well it like that that is in a really kind of sort of snippet kind of way what Montmont's whole the- theology is about is like act for justice seek to suffer with those who suffer you know cross the boundary into the oppression not because like you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or sort of work out your theology but because all will be well and you'll discover that from that place you can't discover that from comfort you can only discover that when your world's been upended so if it hasn't, go find somewhere to get it upended because that's what that's where you'll discover the resurrection. Um and I so I think, yeah, I mean, I think Julian Julian would be one one connection. Great. And I actually think Augustine would be an interesting conversation partner because I think Moltmon would be able to say to Augustine, like, snap out of it, dude. Like it's not as bad as you think it is. Like, cheer up a little bit.
1: Oh, that's great. Well. Um, I know that we asked you last time what was on your nightstand. You were like, dude, I'm too busy writing up some stuff. But did anything make its way there in the, the last couple of days?
2: Um, well, so <laughs> I read a forthcoming book that I'm not sure I'm at liberty to talk about. That's the okay. only thing I've read in the <laughs> last week. No um,
1: comic books or something? Any light reading? I mean, okay.
0: Atlantic articles.
2: No, I haven't done anything, honestly. That's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like still be a good teacher while I finish mm-hmm. up. This well, we appreciate
0: stuff. that. So, yeah.
2: mm-hmm. I don't know that I am. I said I'm trying. But, You're trying to be. Yeah.
0: And it's also only been like three days since we last talked. So Enough, yeah. I also, like, my nightstand is still exactly the same as it was. I'm still just reading Jingo.
1: Yeah. And I'm also still reading. The saga of the sisters and those Mitford ladies. Let's let's get them done with Nazi Germany. Let's let's get that. So, I did pick up another book, um, but I haven't started it, and it was fully random. The Widow of the South by Robert Hicks. Sam is still here. Have you read this one, Sam? Sam reads a lot of stuff, but this one looks like it could be problematic. So we'll see. I don't know. Anyway. Um, That's our time for today, and you have been listening to
0: Bookish at Bethel.